Hey, everybody. Barbara Burke is our guest today, teacher, colleague, friend. I was so inspired by this conversation, so moved. It's deep, it's soulful. We also want to let you know that a portion of this episode contains references to self-harm, eating disorders, child sexual abuse, and it has explicit language. It may not be suitable for all audiences, so use your judgment. And I hope you get so much out of this episode with Barbara Burke. Please enjoy. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning. And on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Barbara Burke, welcome to the program. Thank you, Drew. I am so delighted to be here and honored as well. Looking forward to this conversation, are you? Me too. I've been looking forward to this for the last week. (laughs) Will you introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about who you are. Oh, sure. My name is Barbara Burke, and I actually grew up in Buffalo, New York. Um, In 1951, I was born, and I was born into a family with uh, six other siblings. Yeah, so I lived there until university, and at that point... I decided to go to the University of Toronto in Canada, partly and quite honestly, as I wanted to get out of Buffalo. (laughs) And uh, when I went to the University of Toronto, they were encouraging foreign students, and it was very affordable to me at that point as well. And then I lived in Toronto since I was 20, I guess. So I've lived here for over 50 years. So it's been, been quite a journey. I have a sister here as well, which is really nice, but most of my relatives are in the U.S., and I've held on to my dual citizenship, which has allowed me great freedom in many ways. And you've been a Hoffman Process teacher for how many years? Um, Since 2007. 16 years. Oh, that's so hard to believe. Hard to believe. Uh, as I did my process in, in 1996, so I consider myself sort of an oldie goldie. And at that point in my life, honestly, Drew, I never had the thought of becoming a Hoffman teacher. That was never in my vision. And how I ended up here was um, Maureen Colosso, who was the then owner of Hoffman Canada, had invited me to lunch one day. And I had lunch with her and she said, oh, Barbara, have you ever thought of becoming a Hoffman teacher? And I said, absolutely not. It looks like it's too much work. And she said, oh, Barbara, it's easy. And um, so I I applied to be a teacher. At that point, I had left. I was teaching elementary school, which was never my passion. But I was really at loose ends, and I really didn't know what to do with my life. But I thought, you know what? Uh, There's got to be something more. And so I actually took an early retirement from teaching. And I told myself that if nothing appeared, I'd end up, you know, I'd be okay working at a grocery store. I just really didn't want to teach elementary school. And so that's when Maureen asked me this question, and I applied 
to the teacher training and there were 10 of us and actually two of us made it through the other end and it's been the one of the greatest gifts in my life it really has taken all my skill sets together and i just feel like i'm in my essence whenever i teach it's nice to have a job that supports you being in your essence is it it's incredible and actually all throughout my teacher training my siblings um, and family were, oh, Barbara, you know, there's no guarantee of any work. And, you know, what are you doing? And I said, you know, I just know this is what I'm supposed to do. And of course, when I, when I completed my teacher training, uh, there was lots of work available to me. So Barbara, I, I think as a teacher, you represent a kind of unique perspective for listeners, both as someone who is an expert in the field. And yet I know how you show up in the world, it's your work too. And so let's dig in a little bit if you're okay with that. Why did you go to the process? What pain point were you looking to heal? That is such a great question. And actually, I'm going to start with my younger sister, Sally. In 1995, I had a dream. And in my dream, I saw my sister, Sally, lying parallel to a baguette. And when I had that dream, when I woke up, I thought she has an eating disorder. I knew something was wrong, but I wasn't quite sure what it was. So I called her at that point and said, Sally, do you have an eating disorder? And she said, no, you know, why would you think that? And I said, well, I had this dream. And I said, well, are you okay if I come down to talk to your therapist? Cause I knew she had a therapist. And so as soon as I arrived, Sally came up and said, Barbara, you're absolutely right. I have an eating disorder. We talked and um, she at that point revealed to me, this is hard, Drew, that, um, that she had memories of my father sexually abusing her. And as soon as she told me that, I knew in my gut that it was true. I just knew that it was true. And at that point, I was the only sibling that she had shared this with. And so for the next, you know, six months, it was really hard, number one, to hold on to this incredibly upsetting information and to see her, literally to see her dying before my eyes. And a couple of months later, she called me in Toronto and said that her eating disorders nutritionist said there are two choices, Sally. Either you can, we're going to hospitalize you, or there's this program uh, called the Hoffman Institute, this quadrinity program. And she said, you know, um, I, I just know this is what I need to do. And she said, there's no, yeah, I can't communicate with you during this time. We, we aren't allowed our phones or anything. And quite honestly, I was a huge skeptic. And I remember going to any doctor's office I could find in Toronto saying, have you ever heard of this? Have you ever heard of this? Have you ever heard of this? And no one had heard of Hoffman. And so Sally, Sally went to the process in Canada. Barbara, can I just jump in? Because that dream that you had of her lying next to a baguette and then checking it out with her that she has an eating disorder and her first denying it. And then when you went to visit her, her acknowledging it. Do you think spirit speaks to, to you in dreams? Is that possible? Absolutely, Drew. 
I, I've had a number of times in my life where I've just, through dreams are just my intuition, and I've really learned to trust that and to speak it. But yes, I think absolutely spirit spirit worked, worked through me at that point. And then I don't doubt your skepticism when one doctor recommends something and yet no other doctor you talk to can confirm that that program even exists. Exactly. And I, I remember asking one doctor, I said, I know that she, could she have been cutting herself? That's what I saw on her wrist earlier in the summer. And she had said that a cat had scratched her and there was something that just didn't sit right with me. And they said, well, often when people are in such pain, they cut themselves to let the pain out, to feel it on the outside. And that made sense to me. So I just, from Sally, the conviction in her voice, I thought her spirit was speaking to her too. Spirit said, this is where you need to go. Well, I guess I had no choice, but I did. I thought, well, we'll see what happens. So off she went, Drew. And when she came out the other side, I, I was, again, very skeptical. I thought, well, she seems super happy and content and at peace around my father, which I thought, how can that possibly be? And I thought, well, this will last maybe a week or two weeks. But she just kept on blossoming and blossoming until one day she came up to Toronto and she sat me down. And she said, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. She said, you know, Barbara, do you think you're lovable? And I looked her in the eye, Drew, and I said, no. And she said, you know, Barbara, I really, really wish that you could have this someday. You know, at that point in my life, I didn't have a lot of resources. And so I didn't think it was possible until my mother, who I'd been estranged with, not really estranged, I would see her, but she would come, she'd come into a room to hug me, Drew, and my whole body would stiffen up. And I just, I felt so defended around her and, you know, in retrospect, probably very angry. And so we had a very, you know, surface relationship. And she had actually called me one day and said that there was a ring that surfaced through the soil at her family cottage that my ex-husband had given me. And did I want it? And I said, hmm, I said, well, sure. And then my mother asked me, she said, Barbara, have you ever thought about doing Hoffman? And I said, no, I can't afford it. And she said, you know, Barbara, if this would bring you happiness, I would really like to, to pay for you and give this to you. And I said to her, okay, but there's no guaranteeing and I'll like you at the end of this. And, you know, bless her, Drew. She sent a check in the mail with a, a card that had butterflies all over it. And I still have it to this day. And so I went, I went to the process thinking, well, it worked for my sister, but it won't work for me. But it was truly the most profound experience of my life. I had been in talk therapy for 10 years, and I gave great answers. The therapists all loved me, but I never felt anything until I did the process. And that's what broke me open and really connected me to spirit. As you look back on your process and it breaking you open, are there moments in time that stand out to you? Oh, yeah. And, and right now, if you, if you can see me out there and I have tears in my eyes for sure. I think one of the most profound, there's so many, but one of the most profound moments for me was the cathartic work because in my family system, we were never, ever allowed to get angry even to disagree. 
And when I started doing the expressive work, particularly around my father, the floodgates just opened. And for the first time in my life, I felt I had a voice and I could express my anger and resentment. And with my mother as well, it felt so freeing. I think that in itself, I felt like I had almost been reborn in that moment. And then from that place to do the compassion work of my mother and father. And again, I thought I will never forgive my father ever. He has not only hurt my sister, but destroyed our whole family system. And my mother, for that matter, I was stunned that in a day I could come to a place of real, true, deep compassion for, for the young boy that he was. I mean, he grew up in a family. He had nine siblings. He was a twin. He was the last, last two children in this family of 10. And just really walking in his shoes and imagining his life just opened my heart up to my father and to my mother who, who grew up in a very well-to-do family and her basically her nanny kind of brought her up her her mother had no was not emotionally supportive at all and just to imagine what her life would have been like and so coming out of the process seeing my mother for the first time i could see that little girl in her and i just took her in my arms and just hugged her in a way that i never ever thought would be possible And I think the greatest gift for me was I was at my mother's deathbed. Actually, ironically, it was myself and my sister, Sally. We were the two in her room at the moment that she died. I remember holding her hand and she was gasping for breath. And I looked at Sally and I said, Sally, let's take her into the light. And we invited her into the light together and drew. She took a great big breath. She let out with a sigh and she was gone. And in that moment, I thought she's not her body. Her spirit was just released. And that would never have happened had I not done the process or Sally. The two of you there with her in her last breath were the two who had done the process out of the seven children. And all seven children were there after she had her stroke. But we took shifts of being in the room with her. And Sally and I just happened to be at the shift where she took her last breath. What's that like to remember now here in this moment? Um, Well, honestly, I can see her in that bedroom and I just, my heart is just so grateful. I mean, she... In that moment when she offered me Hoffman, to me that was unconditional love because I was really shitty to her, Drew. And she truly meant what she said for brings you happiness. And I look at her in that bed and I think, you know, she, she really lived her life in a profound way, in a very simple way too. Um, simple in that she never had any great illustrious career, right? But she she was who she was in life. And before she went into assisted living, I went to visit her in Buffalo. And this was when I was just beginning to teach. And she came into my bedroom and she said, you know, Barbara, I've been thinking about you. And she said, the work you do, you're like a priest. And she, she grew up, she's very Catholic. 
And I looked and I said, wow, thank you. And I felt very seen in that moment because I think the work that we do is very sacred work. And again, I really felt like Mother saw me and heard me, which of course I wanted my whole life. But truly through the work of the process, I think I saw her and I think she saw me. Have you been with your sister recently? Do you Are you still connected to her? I have, actually. I just saw, I was just in Florida with my brother who just did the process in November, which was a total dream come true to me. And my sister Sally and her husband Neil, who also has done the process. And my sister Sheila, who hasn't done the process, but who I'm very close to, she lives in Toronto. We were all together for about a week in Florida. Wonderful. Let's just thank you for sharing that story and and take us to your work as a teacher now. You you train, you get through the rigorous training to be a Hoffman teacher and you begin the work uh, in Canada as a as a process teacher. What's that like for you in those early years? It was just and it still is, Drew, so moving to to get to journey with students that come in who who often are just at a point in their life where they think there has to be something more or they they are just so defeated and to see the i'm going to call it the magic of the process just to see people transform before my very eyes i was just thinking earlier today that Again, after the cathartic work, when we meet one-on-one with a student, I can remember the student coming in and saying, Barbara, Barbara, you don't realize you have the cure for the common cold. And I said, what? And she said, it's like you have the cure for the common cold. This work is absolutely transformational, and why aren't more people doing it? And, and I think that is so true. I've never seen anything that that transforms people the way this work does. So I'm often really moved and honored. I've learned a lot over the years. I think I initially thought that somehow I had to do the work for the student or somehow I had to fix people. And I quickly learned that that was not true at all, that it's really about holding the people as their divine essence. In fact, before I ever teach a process, I write down my intentions. And one my intention is just to really love each person in my small group, because I I, want to see them as their essence from the very get-go rather than their patterns. One of my gifts, Drew, I think always has been to, to see inside a person, to see their spirit. I think that's true with my nephews and nieces. Um, Anyone that I encounter like that, I think I have an ability to really see who they are and to really support people in that place. And so I think in many reasons, that's why this work really just took all my skill sets together. And also teaching elementary school all those years. Um, I taught, we call it grade eight in Canada, would be eighth grade in the U.S., where people, you know, they're 12 and 13. And so I think people at the process, often we ask them to go back to their child. And I think all those years of holding a classroom like that really helped me also be a really effective teacher. Yeah, I'm thinking back to the many processes you and I 
have taught together our first one in Canada when I went up north because the Canadian process needed teachers. And now you come down to the U.S. every time you teach, and you even teach in Canada too. You are beloved as a teacher for so many different reasons, but one of the ones that's coming to my mind is the cathartic expressive work and your passion for helping people access anger. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, a couple of things, Drew. I would say I always have believed I can't teach what I don't believe. And I have, I've got to show up as who I am in the world. And I so believe in the cathartic work. I, because as I said to say before, I just see that's where the transformation point is. So when I step into a teaching piece, for instance, the bashing rounds, I want to be there with the student in the bashing. So I literally step into that place and access that energy within myself to hopefully allow them to access their voice and their power in that moment. I, I can remember actually an old boyfriend that taught me how to say fuck. And I've had a number of students say, wow, Barbara, you really know how to say fuck well. And uh, it was something I, I learned. And, and I found to me is so powerful to release that anger and to release the sadness so well to release all of that. So I actually love the cathartic work. I love doing it. And I think I think I come across as authentic because I'm authentically channeling some anger. And the full embodied expression that is so important that helps support our vitality, our liveness. Yeah, exactly. I often say, you know, until you access your anger, you can't access your joy. And I think it's so true. And I must say, even after leading people in bashing and the cathartic work, I feel so much better on the other end of it too. You know, three minutes of doing cathartic work is huge. It's huge. I mean, recently, I think I may have shared with you too, I recognize how much my shame still lives and how I, you know, I think the process is a continually, it's a life journey. And right now, that's what's come up for me is we really look at my shame and and really start to do some work around it. Yeah, let's go there because how do you know shame is coming up? Has it always been there and you're just more aware of it now? Or maybe stuff happened that it's more present in your life. Will you just share a little bit about that? Recently, I've been more aware of it. I think I've, I've always known I held shame, but... I think I learned to hide it well. I'll put it that way. I think I really learned to hide it through my pattern of being a perfectionist or making sure, you know, everything is ordered in a certain way and so on. But I recognized recently that what a hold shame has on me, and I know the roots of it. I'll go back to growing up as one of seven children. I was the third of seven. I would describe myself right now as kind of the runt. And and what I mean by that is that I looked physically very different than my other siblings. I had dark hair. I wore a patch over my eye at age five. I had a lazy eye. So I had to wear a patch over my eye. And of course, my siblings made a lot of fun around that. My teeth were very crooked. I mean, I, I just, I looked really different. And 
And also, I think the big thing for me that I'm really finding out of myself, I think in those days, so I went, you know, I was born in 1951. So going to school, I can remember in second grade, my parents were told, you know, Barbara probably will never learn how to read. And I really struggled at school. And in grade two, actually, the we were given um, awards, and I got award for my closeness to God. Where everybody else got awards for spelling or math or reading, that's what I got. And at the time, I was like, "Great, this is this is what I get an award for." And then when I went to high school, I believe we did aptitude tests, and and again, there were some areas that I just failed abysmally. And so I think I really tried to compensate for what I would call my learning disabilities all my life and worked really hard at it. Most recently, actually, I was playing a board game, which I wasn't very good at, and with my siblings, and they were all really good at it. And I felt my shame get triggered. And again, I could feel the old, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough comparing myself and it just hijacked me in the moment and i went wow so it hijacked you in the moment because i think so many of us struggle to know when shame is present so what were some of the indicators in that moment playing that board game where you were able to say wow this is shame i felt it in my body i want to say i felt it in my chest but i could just feel this this feeling in my chest and probably the pit of my stomach. And I felt like I wanted to run away. I, I really did. In that moment, it was like, I don't want people to see how stupid I am. That would probably be the word that would come to mind was stupid. So I just wanted to run away or make light of it. And I think in that moment too, I went to what's wrong with me? Like what's, what's wrong with me? And so all, all the conversations and messages in my head in that moment. But I think it was, for me, it's the wanting to run away. It's, it's wanting to hide. So how did you get out of it? Let's push play again back in that room with the siblings around the board game. What happened? This is where I think, thank God for my Hoffman tools. Thank God. In that moment, I was able to name it. And that's really important to me. So I went, oh, in my head, I'm like, that's my shame. And the other thing that I did in that moment, and I'd say, certainly in the last couple of years, I've really done a lot of work on self-compassion, is I just put a hand over my hand and stroked my hand. And inside, I thought, that's young Barbara. And I, and I just reminded myself, you know what, it's okay. You're lovable. You can just be who you are. And that really helped me a lot in that moment, just, just for that split second to kind of come back to myself. You know, someone was trying to help me in that moment. I said, you know what? I said, it's okay. I said, I'm just learning and, you know, I'm okay. I don't need to win the game, you know? So that, that really helped me in that moment. And so I'd love you connecting with that little girl. You know, I have a picture, actually, of little Barbara out that I look at each day because I look at her and I think, oh, I look at her eyes, Drew, she was so full of life. There was such hope in that little girl. And I think through a number of experiences as she was young, that light got kind of dimmed. And she had gotten beliefs about herself that are so not true. Can we put the little picture of Barbara in the show notes? Sure, I will absolutely do that. So you look at her every morning? 
I do. Probably not every morning, but I look at her and I just, especially in moments actually where I feel, I feel my own shame or not good enough. I just have to look at her and go, oh, honey, you know, you are so good enough. You know, look at this sweet girl that you were. Earlier, you talked about how, I forget how you framed it, but it's an ongoing process. The process never ends. It never ends, you know, and and I say that to my students too. I say every single day, Drew, I mean, I believe my spiritual practice is absolutely vital to my life. It's absolutely vital. Each day doing a quad check, and and again, I I always say make life easy. Like I'll do my quad check in the shower because I'm going to be taking a shower anyway. But really, truly checking in with my body, checking in with my emotional self, and especially around feelings. Because again, growing up in the family I did, we never talked about feelings. In fact, the only feeling that was acceptable was good or okay. That was it. <laughs> um, I mean, I remember very clearly, I have a memory of my mother. I had been out to the movies with a friend of mine. This would have been in high school, I think, and her father had just died. And I was telling my mother and I started crying and she said, oh, Barbara, don't be so silly. And that was the kind of messaging I got around feelings. So when I went to the process and I had to name a feeling, I'm like, I, I have no idea what to say. So, you know, that's been really important for me to have a vocabulary around feelings and name the feelings as well. It's, it's been huge for me. And what other areas do you feel like you are using the process to continue to learn and grow and engage in life? Well, I, again, I'm going to say the self-compassion piece has really been so important for me for the last couple of years. Also, I would say in relationships, the, the transference tool, again, has been such an eye-opener to me such an eye-opener because I see, you know, how often I can get triggered and particularly in relationship and how often I make up a story about the other person. Oh, I see that a lot. So that's been really great in terms of, of healing around relationships, super important to me. And I think also really kind of recognizing that everybody's doing the best they can, but they all had pain and suffering as children too. And they also took on their own patterns. So I think it's given me more tolerance in my life and more acceptance in my life. Yeah. I heard someone once say, I'm not sure if everybody's doing the best they can, but when I assume they are, my life is a hell of a lot better. I love that. And I was like, that sounds pretty good. We may not know if people are doing the best, but when we take on that assumption, our life immeasurably improves. Yeah. And, you know, I I think back again, I remember after I did my process, I went to do, it was a retreat maybe months later. In the bedroom I was in, there was a book called A Course in Miracles. And I was curious because someone had given me that book many years prior to that moment. And I thought, well, this is gibberish, you know, and I put it away in my bookcase someplace. I like to open up books to a a random piece. And there was a piece in there about basically, who are you to deny your greatness? To deny your greatness is to deny that 
that you were created this magnificent being. And I think that's, so, to me, that's so much what, what Hoffman is about too, is really reclaiming the beauty of our spiritual selves and living from that place. And from that place, Drew, that was one of the things that put me on the path to creating the I Am Divine cards, you know, years later. Would you share a little bit about those cards and what they mean to you and how they can support people in the world? Yeah, sure. So, you know, how they came to be was after the process, again, I knew that I knew I wanted a different career path in life, but I wasn't sure what that might be. And I started working with a woman who would help people find their life path. And she said, oh, Barbara, you came to my apartment. She said, you're all about art and words. And she asked me if I would create some affirmation cards for her clients with I am statements. And I said, sure. And she said, I could do some artwork. And I said, well, I'm not a trained artist. She said, just, you know, do whatever happens. So I would sit there in the morning and I would take a recipe card and I would write the, and, and she decided to, to put the word divine in. So I would write, I'm divine gratitude. And then I had a set of prismacolor crayons and I would just let myself draw whatever came to me, never thinking I would do anything with them. So I did a number of cards and then we decided to have a, um, a partnership and then the partnership uh, dissolved at one point. And, and again, I used my Hoffman tools around creating boundaries and so on. And she gave me back the cards and I was about to throw them away actually, because I thought there were so many sort of bad karma with them. And I had a friend of mine look at them and said, these are incredible. Have you ever thought about writing anything? And I said, well, I'm not a writer. And she said, I think you should write something. So, and, and again, in those days, I would do a conversation with spirit each morning. I would just write a dialogue with spirit. And I sat down in a cafe and I thought, oh, I'm going to write about gratitude. And I just wrote whatever was in my heart, no editing. And I did that with each one of these cards. And then I gave them to a friend who was a very, well, she's someone who didn't pull any punches. And she read them and said, Barbara, these need to be out in the world. So at that point, I sent them, I sent a couple of cards to different publishers. And the first publisher I heard back from was Connie Kellogg, and she owned Namaste Publishing in Vancouver. And she said, Barbara, these are magnificent, but I'm working with a new author called Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> and she said, I just don't have the, the bandwidth to work, but you should send them to other publishers. And I did that. And everyone told me they were fabulous, but they didn't print cards. So I decided to self-publish. And with the help of my oldest sister, who gave me the funds to do it, I self-published and Hoffman Canada agreed to carry them. And they started selling them to people. And, and again, I thought no one will ever buy these. And I have a whole binder of testimonials from people just telling me how important they've been. And they've been part of their spiritual practice. So I feel so grateful that I can contribute that into the world. I imagine you've put out thousands to graduates and non-grads alike. Yeah, I have actually. I've done three reprints now, which uh, is pretty exciting. And then I created a journal as well to go with the cards. And I, again, I put my own artwork in there. And again, as someone who's never been trained in artists, it's exciting and scary to put out your own artwork 
And then I created a set of children's cards recently too. Will you share just a bit here about how you use cards? How would one use cards? Well, what I do, and I have my cards right here, is I simply ask spirit for a message. So I shuffle the cards and I draw a card out and then I read the meditation to goes with it. And I put that as part of my day that I want to live that in my day. So the card that I have before me today is I'm divine vision. And I am divine vision is all about seeing people through the eyes of spirit. So throughout the day, I'll remind me, am I seeing this person through the eyes of spirit? I mean, there's no right way to use the cards, Drew. I know some people that will shuffle them, or some people just draw one card a day, or some people might draw several cards. Um, I think it's whatever you're drawn to. But I truly believe that you'll always get the perfect card. And sometimes I'll get a card three days in a row, and they're exactly the same card. So it might be, I'm divine honesty. So I think, wow, it's a pretty strong message. Where in my life do I need to be more honest with myself or other people. So to me, they're just always bang on. Barbara, how are you doing? Sharing all this beautiful, wonderful stuff. I'm just really grateful, Drew, that you've given me this opportunity to to talk about this. And I, I can see how the different experiences in my life have come together to bring me to this point too. What lake do you look out on? I look out on Lake Ontario. It's it's pretty dark right now, Drew, so I can't quite see the lake, but I have a beautiful view of High Park and beyond that, the lake. And that was actually part of my Hoffman vision was I would live in a place where I could look out on the water. And I had no idea that this is where I would end up, but I'm looking out on the water. Anything else to share before we wrap? Well, just my absolute eternal grateful our gratitude for the Hoffman process and how it has just transformed my life. It's so interesting to have been transformed by the taking of the process and transformed by the teaching of the process. Yes. Well, I think every time I teach, I am a better person because I learn so much each time I teach. And when you say learn, learn about? I learn about myself. I'm reminded of the power of spirit. I'm reminded of my own patterns. I, I can see my own patterns, for instance, in transference. So I'm reminded again, the power of both the tools and the practices. And I learn about my, I learn so much from my students. They teach me so much. They teach me so much in their, the way they show up, in their courage, in their curiosity. Yeah, I, I learned a lot. Barbara, thank you for this conversation. I'm so grateful. You are so welcome, Drew. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love in themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.